Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the second chapter of God of, uh, of John's gospel, verses thirteen through twenty-two. And before I I, I start this, I, I I need to say that. Uh, This is one area where I think it's important to point out from a teaching standpoint the difference between the synoptic gospels, which are uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke over here, and then you've got John wandering around in the wilderness over here. The main thing is, as I'm reading our scripture for this morning, it's important to note that the event that Jesus is that that Jesus is dealing with here on the Passover and the turning of the tables, as we'll find out in just a moment, is according to the Synoptic Gospels an event that occurred following the entrance into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. It's a very good example of the difference different ways that that the gospel writers looked at things. Matthew, Mark, and Luke look at things pretty much in a timeline fashion. Following Jesus' ministry from the beginning to the end and the resurrection. John, because they're, 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 they're concerned in their constituencies of bringing that information to the people, to, to uh, not necessarily providing a biography of Jesus, but to bring the information to the people in an orderly fashion. John, however, is solely interested in the Christology of Christ, interested in the theology. So John could care less about timelines. He could really care less about timelines. That's one of the reasons why most scholars believe that he placed this event at the beginning of the gospel because as we'll find out in the sermon or hopefully we'll find out in the sermon there's a reason for turning the tables hear these words from the gospel of John the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, open our ears that we may hear your truth. Open our eyes that we may see your kingdom. 
and open our hearts and minds that we might know the cries of our brothers and sisters who are hurting and hungry and sometimes even dying without the knowledge of your love for them. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, Charlene and I over the years have done have done some traveling, not quite as much as as we would have liked, and honestly, probably not quite as much as we're going to be doing after June sixteenth. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> we, we we especially remember uh, a few years back, uh, my first year here uh, in 2018, as I, and actually before I came here in 2018, as I was making the transition from Sand Mountain United Methodist Church during, during that two-week transition period to, to, to come here to McFarland, Charlene and I took a trip to New York State to visit our daughter, who was uh, an assistant stage manager at, at the uh, Saratoga Opera Company in Saratoga Springs, New York, just outside of Albany. And on the way there, we took a meandering drive because we had two weeks. We took a meandering drive up there and, and, and visited the area around Lancaster, Pennsylvania to see the Amish and, and some of the things that were going on there. And as you may expect, every year thousands of tourists clog the country roads in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, so that they could admire the lush, neat farmlands nurtured by the Amish farmers of that region. The Amish sell their beautiful quilts, which is always an attraction for Charlene as a quilter. But they also sell homegrown and home-preserved foods and handmade furniture. And driving down the roads in their black horse-drawn rigs, wearing their 18th century plain clothes, they reject all modern conveniences. You see, the Amish have become icons of a simple, devout, community-based lifestyle. But Amish country, as we found out, is home to more than quilting bees and barn raisings. If you've driven through the area in the past couple of years, you'll recognize huge billboards with pathetic pictures of dogs inviting both residents and visitors to be on high alert and on puppy mill watch. Now, why is that? Well, Lancaster County and the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania are recognized as the nation's capital for puppy mills. Breeding stock, that's code for female dogs, live out their entire lives locked in two foot by two foot wire cages, all housed in dirty, dilapidated sheds. They survive on a minimum of food and water, receive no love, no physical or emotional interaction with humans or even other dogs. And when the breeding females reach the age of seven or eight years, they're considered too old and are routinely killed. The puppies are sold quickly before the infections and genetic defects that they harbor become too obvious. One puppy farmer last year was cited by local authorities in order to get his 80 breeding dogs vaccinated, but instead this man the next day shot all 80 of his dogs. The defense that some Amish offer for their disregard of these dogs is theological. 
faith-based even. You've heard it probably said. God gave us animals to use as we see fit. That's the Genesis defense for animal abuse. And apparently some of these Amish and convicted animal abusers like Michael Vick, former, former, that former NFL player who bred and killed pit bulls for fighting at his bad news kennels, share a common faith. Yet, there's something wrong here. The God who created this world, the, the God who keeps track of the comings and goings of even the smallest of sparrows, might see things differently. It's reported that the following edition of the book of Genesis was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if authentic, it would shed light on the question, where do pets come from? And Adam said, Lord, when I was in the garden, you walked with me every day. Now I don't see you anymore. I'm lonesome down here and it's difficult for me to remember how much you love me. And God said, no problem. I'll create a companion for you that will be with you forever and who will be a reflection of my love for you so that you will know that I love you even when you cannot see me. Regardless of how selfish and childish and unlovable you may be, this new companion will accept you as you are and will love you as I do in spite of yourself. And God created a new animal to be a companion for Adam. And it was a good animal. And God was pleased. And the new animal was pleased to be with Adam, and he wagged his tail. And Adam said, but Lord, I've already named all the animals in the kingdom, and, and all the good names are taken, and I can't think of a name for this new animal. God said, no problem, because I've created this new animal to be a reflection of my love for you. His name will be a reflection of my own name, and you will call him Dog. And dog lived with Adam and was a companion to him and loved him. And Adam was comforted and God was pleased. And dog was content and wagged his tail. After a while, it came to pass that Adam's guardian angel came to the Lord and said, Lord, Adam has become filled with pride. He struts and preens like a peacock and he believes that he is worthy of adoration. Dog has indeed taught him that he is loved, but no one has taught him humility. And the Lord said, no problem. I'll create for him, for him a companion who will be with him forever and who will see him as he is. The companion will remind him of his limitations so he will know that he is not worthy of adoration. And God created Cat to be a companion to Adam. And Cat would not obey Adam. And when Adam gazed into Cat's eyes, he was reminded that he was not the supreme being and Adam learned humility. And God was pleased, and Adam was greatly improved, and Gat and Cat couldn't care less one way or the other. Now I have to thank, I have to thank Dr. Lynn Sweet for this, uh, for pointing me to this little uh, illustration. It's uh, from an anonymous author, and was found in a book called *Paw Prints and Purrs: Home of the Bachman Kittens*, a collection of animal poems and stories copyright back in 97. You know, there's something unique about the relationship between human beings and their canine companions. Archaeological digs at ancient campsites have found evidence of dogs sharing the firelight and, and big bones with humans. 
And some of the earliest burial sites ever unearthed have found human bones and canine bones intermingled. In other words, dogs were buried with their masters. Over the centuries, dog breeders have created hundreds of different breeds. Now, Dalmatians might not look much like dachshunds, but they have something in common that distinguishes all dogs from their wolf ancestors. Wolves howl, yip, they even sing, but, but only domesticated canines bark. From big, deep wolves and annoying, endless yapping, barks are the universal trait of dogness. Barking is what distinguishes dogs from their wild ancestors. So, why do dogs bark? Ethnologists theorize that it's because of their chosen partnership with human beings that dogs took up barking. Barking is their attempt to communicate with people. The unique relationship between dogs and people required a new vocabulary, and so dogs invented barking. And unfortunately for dogs, we never learned the language of barkies. The most recent research on barking makes the case for a dog's acute sense of normal and abnormal. Some go as far as to argue for a dog's sense of fairness and unfairness, which... Honestly, I think it's probably going a little too far, but, but what isn't going too far is this. Instead of appreciating our furry friend's attempt to communicate with us, we hear their barking as just so much noise and nuisance. We hear their language, but we don't understand it. And since we don't understand it, we find all this barking just to be annoying. But dogs keep trying, whether we want them to or not. Dogs continue to bark. They bark at our comings and goings, at the approach of all unknown others, at noises and nuisances that aren't normal, at breakthroughs and break-ins, even with people walking up and down the street in front of their house, like my Shay will do when she's sitting in my lap. With our limited human ears, we don't really get it, but our canine companions keep on reporting and watching. Learning to hear and understand and communicate in new ways is the focal point of this week's gospel text. That and, well, just Jesus completely reworking the entire faith structure of Judaism. Before Jesus' cleansing of the temple, the road to redemption was straightforward, easily understood, and quite bloody. God's good side was reached by traveling a road paved with animal sacrifice, blood, and priestly intercessions. There were hoops that had to be jumped through. There were dues that had to be paid. There were temple officiates who had to be recognized. The, the road to personal redemption was, was studied with official theological stoplights. But Jesus changed all of that. By his death and resurrection, Jesus changed that forever. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, as recorded in this week's text from the Gospel of John, he gave cliff notes to this future for those who witnessed his words and believed in his mission. The first action that Jesus took was to set free the animals destined to be sacrifices to God. You know, there's no record that Jesus ever offers animal sacrifices or even encourages his disciples to do so. In fact, the commercial corruption in the temple that triggered this whip-cracking whip, whip side of Jesus' personality 
may have included abuses in the custom of animal sacrifices. His compassion for the outcast and oppressed overflows into anger at the trade in sacrificial animals in the great courtyard of the temple, the religious, social, and commercial center of the city. Jesus' temple tantrum may be directed at least in part against the wanton selling and slaughter of animals at huge profits for the high priests and their temple merchant cronies. A house of prayer and peace had been turned into a den of thieves and violence. The author Gore Vidal wrote in Live from, from Golgotha that Jesus lowered the prime rate. Or in other words, of another biblical scholar, what Jesus did was like attacking the Bank of America. But if animal sacrifice and temple taxes were no longer the way to get on God's good side, what then did God require? Under the old system, the blood of the animal and the paid participation of the priest guaranteed a right relationship between the individual and the divine. But Jesus' actions tossed aside all those intermediaries and cleared the house, the place where the presence of God resides, of all but God and the one who would stand before God. So now, getting right with God will now take personal participation and a personal relationship with God. From its beginning, Christianity has been outspoken against the old animal sacrifice system, but Christianity has tended to replace one kind of sacrifice with another. Instead of an altar running with blood, the church has held up the cross. The blood of animals was replaced by the blood of Christ. Yet Jesus' new temple was not to be constructed out of blood, but rather out of his body. And this, my friends, is huge. The replacement for animal sacrifice was not the cross, but the meal at which Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. The meal where Jesus becomes bread for our bodies is the divine substitute for animal sacrifice. Too much of our time is spent trying to figure out how, how bread becomes Jesus when the real question is how Jesus becomes bread and whether we will let Jesus be the bread of life. Jesus' death on the cross was a once-for-all event. And as disciples of Christ, we do not participate in that cross event. We're called to carry the cross, not climb on the cross. What Jesus does, what Jesus does call his disciples to participate in is his body. And this new temple is not architecture held up by the cross. The new temple is a living organism, the body, the, the new body of Christ that you and I are invited to participate in. What replaces the sacrifice of animals is not Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but the Eucharist, the holy meal, our organic participation in this new body of Christ. The very images of bread and wine are symbols of participation and, and partnership between the Creator and the created. 
as each are the fruit of the earth and the work of human hands. But, but even that doesn't go far enough. The true life of the new body, the, the reborn temple, is found elsewhere and is found everywhere. Jesus does not just become bread for us during the holiness of communion. Jesus becomes the bread of life in the everyday holiness of life. Jesus' body becomes bread in our prayers. Jesus' body becomes bread in the encouraging words that others offer to us. Jesus' body becomes bread in the ladles of soup and scoops of mashed potatoes that are offered at soup kitchens. Jesus' body becomes bread in boardrooms when moral righteousness outweighs maximized profits. Jesus becomes bread when compassionate care, not just professional care, fills the halls of our hospitals. Jesus' body becomes bread when we honor the sanctity of the creation that God has placed us within, when we treat dogs and cats with respect and tenderness. What others outside the body of Christ may hear is meaningless barking. Those who participate in this new temple here as God's gracious words, as a new divine creative and directive. It may still be hard for us to hear, but God keeps speaking to us. I am the bread of life. Jesus says, let me be your daily bread. Did you hear Jesus say, my body broken for you? I think it's time to bake some bread for a hungry world. And I invite us to bake the real daily bread. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We invite you to visit our website at mcfarlandumc.org to learn more about our church and the ministries that we provide to the Rossville and East Lake communities around Chattanooga. May God's blessings be yours.